We're in a Got Question series. And uh, this week is, uh, why does religion cause division? That's the question we're thinking about. Now, uh, straight off the bat, let me tell you, because this is important. um, Toby was going to preach this sermon. And he's unwell at the moment. And on Friday, I heard that it was a potential that I would be preaching today. And on Saturday, it was confirmed. So uh, I've got his sermon and I've touched it up. Sean's you know. <laughs> they made it a lot shorter. No, most he was, it was very good. I was very pleased with what I got. Sometimes Toby's preaching and he's making edits as he goes, and it looks like that anyway. So it's not that. It's all, it's all very good. Um, and, uh, but uh, bear with me. Um, here we go. Religion. Can any religion claim to bring peace to this earth? Doesn't religion cause conflict and war and violence? That's the charge of new atheists in particular. Uh, We've got a couple here. And uh, physicist Victor Stenger says, science flies us to the moon, religion flies us into buildings. Sam Harris calls religion the most potent source of human conflict, past and present. Richard Dawkins contends that most, if not all, of the violent enmities in the world are due to the divisive force of religion. And physics Nobel Prize winner uh, Steven Weinberg says, religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you'd have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, it takes religion. Now, that way of thinking has pervaded our, our culture, our society. Um, it's pervaded our thinking, and so it's not uncommon. I'm not surprised that this was one of the top four questions. Um, and uh, this might surprise you coming from a minister of religion, but, I th- well, to a degree, I think they're right. Religion does cause division. Um, what's going on there? Tim Keller, who's a a Christian author, he writes, Religion, generally speaking, tends to create a slippery slope in the heart. Each religion informs its followers that they have the truth, and this naturally leads them to feel superior to those with differing beliefs. Also, a religion tells its followers that they are saved and connected to God by devotedly performing that truth. This moves them to separate from those who are less devoted and pure in life. Therefore, it is easy for one religious group to stereotype and caricature other ones. Once this situation exists, it can easily spiral down into the marginalisation of others or even to active oppression, abuse or violence against them. So what he's saying is that there's a... um, You did it for me, Dave. Thank you. Um, What he's saying is there's a truth claim that's made, makes people feel superior about themselves, then they try to hold on to that superiority, even whack others over the head with it uh, to make themselves feel better, will necessarily divide. Um, If I've got the truth and you don't, we're going to divide. And then there's caricature, I'll make things look funny. You know, the caricature's biggies, they make them look bigger, make them look ugly. Uh, Then it leads to active oppression, abuse, violence. That's the slippery slope that truth claims make and religions make truth claims. So we all agree religion is the cause of conflict. 
But the question remains is, what are we going to do about it? Uh, There's three, there's a number of things that people try to do about it. If religion causes conflict, what can we do about it? There's a number of things people try. I've got three to present today, and I don't think that they actually do work. I'll show you why, and I think they actually make the problem worse. We'll go back to considering why, the question of why, which is our, our question, and then I'll present a fourth option, which I think will work. So first option is devolve religion. Uh, one way to deal with the divisiveness of religion is to hope and expect that it will die out. It'll peter out. Now, uh, the thinking goes that we once needed religion to understand this incomprehensible, uh, frightening, terrifying world, uh, and religion filled that gap for us. But now that we've come to know the world, we've become scientifically sophisticated, technologically advanced. We can just allow, can't we? Religion can die out now. Individuals can let it go. We no longer need it. Now, that's the view. But the problem with that view is that's not what's happened. Uh, the secularization thesis, which is what it's called, is now largely discredited. Uh, virtually all major religions, when you consider the world, are growing. And Christianity's growth, especially in the developing world, is explosive. There's now six times as many Anglicans in Uganda alone than in the United States. Uh, Korea has gone from 1% to 40% Christians uh, in the last 100 years. And experts believe that the same thing would happen in China. And so if in 50 years' time, China was 40% Christian, that is completely changing the course of human history and completely discrediting this view that we could just deal with the divisiveness of religion by allowing it to devolve. Um, Now, Australia itself, very technologically advanced, sophisticated. Um, We're seeing, yes, perhaps a more secular society, but also a more robust religious group. Um, Now, my, my wife, she's friends with the wife of Michael Spence, who was the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney Uni. The Vice-Chancellor of Sydney Uni just finished last year. Very committed Christian. Um, John Lennox, he speaks about how science and faith are not incompatible. And we can look at this church. Uh, Various people with doctorates in mathematics and science and psychology and philosophy and the list goes on. And so the idea that the, the religion will just decline... As, uh, as we become more sophisticated, it just doesn't square with the fact that many educated, well-educated people are coming to faith, uh, to have a deep and robust faith in Christ. And not just the, um, not a thin version, but one that believes in miracles, uh, believes in the supernatural, one that holds to the authority of Scripture, uh, one that believes in a personal conversion. Uh, so religion won't dissolve, uh, devolve. That won't solve the problem of religious divisiveness. What about another one? Could we drive out religion? So another way to deal with the divisiveness of religion has been to control it, oppress it, forbid it with a heavy hand. Uh, there's been several massive efforts in the 20th century Soviet, Russia, Communist China, the Khmer Rouge, and in a different way, Nazi Germany, were all determined to tightly control religious practice in an effort to stop it from dividing the nation, dividing society or eroding the power of the state. 
The result, however, was not more peace and harmony, but more oppression. Alastair McGrath uh, highlights the tragic irony of this situation in, he, in the history of atheism. He writes, The 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history. That the greatest intolerance and violence of the century were practised by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. So by trying to get rid of intolerant, violent religion, it created more intolerance and violence than was there before. And uh, not only that, it didn't work. Uh, because of the vitality of the religious faith in those who were being oppressed. It only served to make it stronger. An example of this is when the Chinese communists drove out Western missionaries after World War II. Uh, they thought they were killing Christianity. They thought this would be the end of it. But all it did was actually serve to make the faith of the indigenous Christians in China stronger. Uh, it had The leaders had to rise up from the local church and that was perhaps the best thing that could have happened uh, to Christianity. So it doesn't work to drive out religion. Third option, privatise religion. Another way to deal with the divisiveness of religion, and it's the main strategy right now, in our society at least, is to privatise religion. So the strategy goes, we can have peace on earth if all people who have religious beliefs privatise them. Keep them hidden. Keep them private. Don't bring your religious beliefs into work when you're making work decisions or politics when you're making laws or public discourse just in general. Uh, keep it behind you. What we should do is we should all be pragmatists. Work with the things that we can work on. Um, now, the, the reason that they're doing that is that not everyone holds to that religious belief. And so if we're not all on the same page, we can't make decisions about this together. That's the view. And what we should do is be pragmatists. Uh, we should put our values and our religious beliefs behind us, come together to do what works. Focus on the great issues of our day, curing diseases, investing in education, um, solving poverty. Do what works. Let's use our energy for that. Forget about religion. Keep that in the back. Um, but the problem with this view is it's incredibly naive. Uh, Stephen Carter, who's the professor of law at Yale Law School, he says that uh, privatising religion is incredibly naive and it's ultimately impossible. He writes, uh, Efforts to craft a public square from which religious conversation is absent, no matter how thoughtfully worked out, will always in the end say to those of organised religion that they alone unlike everyone else, must enter public dialogue only after leaving behind that part of themselves that they may consider the most vital. See, for religion for Christians, Muslims, Orthodox Jews is not something private. If we, if we were to draft new laws that impact society, I can leave behind what flavour ice cream I like. Uh, if I'm making a decision about the curriculum in a public school, I can leave behind what music I prefer. If I'm making a decision about my business and what direction it goes in, I can leave behind that I like action movies more than romance. Um, but, but not religion. Religion doesn't just inform what I do in private and my own preferences. Religion informs how I live in public. And that's because religion provides a master narrative and a foundational belief. And it's not just 
religious people who have master narratives and foundational beliefs. We all do. If you're not religious, you have a set of foundational beliefs about the meaning of life, about who you are, about where you're heading, about what we should be putting our energy into. They are beliefs. See, here's an example. Um, Human rights. It's a belief which no amount of science can prove. And we're not going to say put the idea that human rights exist behind you when you're making decisions about laws in our country, about what direction your business should go in or what you should educate your children on. That matters. It's your foundational belief and you... It's driving you. Don't put it behind you. Uh, it's, it's, it's naive to ask someone to do it. And yet that's what religious people are asked to do. If we're going to deal with the divisiveness of religion, privatise it, it's naive and ultimately impossible. Um, our religious beliefs are not some niche part of us that we could leave behind. They're foundational to our lives and they impact how you live in the world. Now, the irony is that by telling people to privatise religion, uh, it leads to greater sectarian division in the world. It's important to talk about what you believe and why you believe it, um, why you hold them so dearly. So here's where we're at. We can't devolve religion. Our world's not becoming more secular the more advanced we get. Uh, We can't drive it out. It'll only create more division. And we can't privatise it. It's foundational to how people live. So what are we going to do? Maybe there is a fourth option. Um, A better religion. A fundamental belief system that led people to peace and not to division. See, even if devolving religion, driving out religion, privatising religion, even if we could do that, it wouldn't actually solve the problem of conflict. And let me demonstrate. Most retellings of Religious violence are overstated. Um, Go with me here. If you take a look at the Spanish Inquisition, which if we accept as a religiously motivated conflict, some people don't think it is, but even if you did, uh, it's responsible for about 2,000 executions over a period of 300 years. If you look at the Northern Ireland conflict, which I think there's a greater case you could say that it was a national or a political conflict, uh, but even if you were to take it as a religious conflict, it's responsible for 3,500 people dying over 30 years. But if you look at the French Revolution, which was a secular conflict, in just one year, 40,000 executions. And if we come into the 20th century now, the violence of Christendom is dwarfed by the violence of secular regimes. Stalin's responsible for 20 million deaths produced by mass slayings, forced labour, death camps, firing squads, starvation and so on. And scholars suggest that Mao Zedong was responsible for a staggering 70 million deaths. Pol Pot killed an estimated 1.5 to 2 million of the population of Cambodia and just one-fifth survived. So these three heads of the three officially atheistic states are responsible for more than 100 million deaths in the 20th century. They're responsible for the gulag, the cultural revolution, the killing fields, the removal of children from parents who, wouldn't, who would teach their kids what they believed. They refused higher education to believers in God, the discrimination against believers in the workplace, pillaging, destruction, burning of places of worship. And add to these regimes a host of other dictators, atheist dictators like Hitler and Lenin. Um, It goes on. 
So the fact is that all religions of the world over the last 3,000 years have not managed to kill anywhere near the number of people that atheism has in the past century. Moral philosopher Peter Singer and evolutionary biologist Mark Hauser in their book write, Lest we be charged with a blinkered view of the world, atheists have also committed their fair share of heinous crimes, including Stalin's slaughter of millions of people in the USSR, Pol Pot's creation of the killing fields, in which more than a million Cambodians were murdered. Putting these threads together, the conclusion is clear. Neither religion nor atheism has a monopoly on the use of criminal violence. Now, that's not a Christian saying that. That's an, that's an, athe- an atheist. But here's the thing. It's the point of me saying all this. It wasn't a competition. It wasn't, let's just try to find who kills the least number of people and go with them. No, 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 no. Even one death at the hands of a Christian, not acceptable, particularly Christianity. So that wasn't the point. Um, so I'm just going to go to, the point is, where is the problem? Uh, we're now coming in to answer the question of why does religion cause division? David Bentley Hart, American philosopher, he says, Some men kill because their faiths explicitly command them to do so. Some kill, though their faiths explicitly forbid them to do so. And some kill because they have no faith and hence believe all things are permitted to them. Men will always seek gods in whose name they may perform great deeds or commit unspeakable atrocities. Then again, men also kill on account of money, land, love, pride, hatred, envy or ambition. Does religious conviction provide a powerful reason for killing? Undeniably, it often does. For the truth is that religion and irreligion are cultural variables, but killing is a human constant. Killing is a human constant. Conflict and division is a human constant because it's in our hearts. Wherever the human heart goes, there goes division. But how can Christianity help? How can Christianity help? What would be a fourth option? Because if you take a closer look at Christianity inside itself, it has resources for both explaining and expunging the natural slippery slope that tends to grow in every human heart toward oppression and division. The reason religion leads to war and conflict is the same reason that atheism leads to war and conflict. Because when we believe we've got the truth, we feel superior about it. We look down upon others and we start to do things to promote our own truth. And often things begin to spiral. See, for every religious or secular killing, There's someone somewhere who believes they're doing the right thing by their truth, their fundamental. So this is the question. Is there a fundamental belief which has built into it a natural criticism of the religious or atheist impulse to commit violence and impose your truth on others? In Sydney, most people think fundamentalism is the cause of the problem. We need to just chill Don't get so fundamental about these things. But the thing is, everyone has fundamentals. Everyone. Richard Dawkins, it's science and natural selection. Uh, For Muslims, it's the will of Allah. 
For Buddhists, it's the fivefold path. For Christians, it's that you can only be right with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everyone has a fundamental. You can't avoid them. If you think you can, if you say the, the only fundamental I'll have, well, I'm going to say no fundamentals, is a fundamental. Um, if we gave you the bopper and you were to go around and look for people who have fundamentals, you'd be bopping them on their, everyone on their head and you ought to bop yourself on the head too because your fundamental is no fundamentals. We all have fundamentals. We can't avoid them. The real question is which fundamental view of life makes those who believe them or hold to them peaceful? And which fundamental views make those who believe them divisive? Which fundamental makes you look at people and love them and care for them and want what's best for them and be willing to listen to them and learn from them? That's what we need to find. See, although the charge that religion's the source of war and even Christendom is or has been part of the cause of war, the charge isn't valid against the teaching of Christ himself. See, Christendom isn't the same as Christianity. Christendom's violence was not Christian for the simple reason that it was diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ himself. So what did Jesus teach? We heard a bit of it in that famous Sermon on the Mount, which we had read for us. So we'll go there now. If you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to skip across the, the, the chapter. So start in verse 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In other words, God makes peace. And therefore, if you're a true child of God, you'll do what he does, make peace. We'll continue verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying, I don't want your faith in me to be kept private. Live it out in front of the world. Stay salty. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and come to know God. But what is the light where to shine? Jesus tells us in the rest of the sermon, but here's one section which is particularly relevant. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, people who engage in violent activities at any time, Northern Ireland, the Balkans, any time, and invoke the name of God are certainly not obeying what Christ has told them to do. Whatever they say to the contrary. See, to be a Christian is a Christian, a follower of Christ. Uh, so that means that you would obey his commandments. And uh, Jesus clearly teaches his followers not to hate their enemies, but to love them. And he didn't just teach it, he lived it. 
On the night he was betrayed, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, soldiers come to arrest him, bring swords and clubs and lanterns. They expect him to fight. His disciples expect him to fight. They pull out their own swords and start chopping wildly. Jesus doesn't fight. In fact, he heals the servant who uh, had his ear chopped off. See, he couldn't have made it more plain. To take the sword, the gun, the bomb in Christ's name is to repudiate both Christ and his message. He will have none of it. Taking a weapon into one's hands on God's behalf is a contradiction and it's an affront to Christianity. The heart of Christianity is a man who died for his enemies. And while he was being crucified, he prayed for forgiveness for those who put him there. So if the fundamental view of your life is a man who died asking God to forgive those who put him there, who opposed him, then you realize that perhaps here is a religion that offers the world a way of believing that isn't violent. But more than that, Christianity is able to critique the violence of religion. It says the reason for division and violence in the world is not irreligion or irreligion. It's the human heart. And Jesus came to deal with the problem and save us from it. Now, when Martin Luther King Jr. confronted racism in the white church in the South, he didn't call on Southern churches to become more secular, to privatise their religion. He didn't do that. He told white Christians they'd forgotten their fundamental beliefs. He spoke about all people being made in the image of God. And he told people that God's justice will roll down on those who practice injustice. The greatest champion of justice in our era knew the antidote to racism was not less Christianity, but a deeper and truer Christianity. So why does religion cause division? It's a problem in the human heart, which Jesus has come to fix. Why does anyone in Christendom be involved in conflict and division? Well, it's because they've either forgotten or they're willfully ignoring the teaching of Christ. I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray for a couple of things. Pray for um, forgiveness for those who have carried out acts in Christ's name that are just repugnant to Christianity and to Christ himself. Uh, thank God for Jesus himself and uh, then pray for help for us going forward. So please join me in prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we do lament uh, at the, the fact of uh, religion's cause of divisiveness, but we, we're, we're relenting in that fact at the brokenness of humans. Uh, we, we lament that Christianity would ever be involved in that. We are sorry for those who have taken uh, Christ's name uh, and used that for violence. Uh, we thank you for Jesus, for his life, showed us and his teaching, showed us uh, how you would have us live. Thank you most of all for his death and his resurrection. Uh, which has deal, dealt with the problem of the human heart. Uh, please help us now as we go out to be peacemakers, that we might be children of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.